1: I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. For the people of the Dawnland, they were floating islands. The sails resembled clouds, and the men gathered on deck looked like bears. When Europeans came ashore, whether Danes in what would become Newfoundland, or English settlers in the land they named Virginia, their mastery of the oceans did not translate into supremacy on land small conflicts and colonial enclaves evolved into transatlantic wars that transformed the political and social worlds of millions. Europeans were people of the oceans fanning out across the globe in vessels that pursued and extracted natural resources while doubling as weapons of war. For some time now, historians have approached the Atlantic as an integrated and connected world defined by the movement of people, goods, and ideas. In Atlantic Wars from the 15th century to the Age of Revolution, just published by Oxford University Press, Geoffrey Plank, professor of early modern history at the University of East Anglia here in the UK, uses war as a lens to examine the interactions of peoples who forge shared experiences amid endemic conflict. The result is a sweeping and masterly synthesis of the intermingling of European, indigenous, and African histories, which connects the Atlantic with continental, Pacific, and oceanic perspectives. Jeff Plank joins me from Norfolk. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. So I just want to talk about first, I mean, this is a, uh, a large, uh, transnational, transtemporal book that takes us from South America, North America, across Europe to Africa. And places in between i want to talk first about how you got started on this project why did you decide to 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 embark on, on something this ambitious
0: well it's been a long uh, journey i uh, uh i started my career studying the french colony of acadia which is conquered uh, by the british and becomes nova scotia and i incorporated the experience of micmac and acadians and british and, and in that project i uh, was really early on grappling with the problem of of borders and how you confine a topic within, you know, one frame or another—the French Empire, the British Empire, North America—and and, uh, and uh, you know, eventually moving on to the Atlantic. And since then, I've studied other, uh, 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 you know, Atlantic scale uh, problems. Um, the idea of this book came up pretty much parallel with the book, I, I, um, my earlier book on Quakers. And one of the strange sort of connections between the two is this perception that uh, the whole world is impacting people where they live. And this was something that really concerned the Quaker John Woolman, that, uh, you know, his economy in rural New Jersey was connected to warfare in Africa and naval warfare all over the Atlantic world. And so, uh, 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 you know, the issues he was worried about are, you know, in in some ways parallel uh, to the issues that I'm trying to uh, work with in this. Yeah. Like you say, uh, a crazily uh, large book.
1: <laughs> well, not crazily. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's under, it's, uh, it's totally under control. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to turn to this uh, issue of colonialism, but I mean, I mean that's an important point that the, the people in colonial worlds were connected in all kinds of ways to a, a global web of networks of exchange and, and various other things, and that that trend in scholarship has really mm-hmm. illustrated worlds that we we didn't know before, but. You, in this book, provide us with a really powerful reminder by positioning war and violence and militarism as a driver of imperial and colonial activity. And you say and remind us that colonies were, quote, military projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if you could say uh, more about what you mean by that and give us some examples, perhaps.
0: Well, uh, yeah, they were military projects because uh, every colony needed military force to uh, uh, to survive uh, in the Atlantic world. And I guess uh, ships are really central to my whole conception of this, uh, that, that, that ships were uh, armed vessels designed to withstand uh, uh, attack and to attack. And basically everybody who relied on ships was in a sense feeding into, benefiting from or suffering from a, a, a longstanding pattern of European conflict at sea and the, the technology that developed from that. Um, so and, and then moving forward, so the, the dispossession of peoples, the, the distribution of resources, huge patterns of migration, uh, largely dependent on ships and also on conflict in various parts of the Atlantic world. The labor system depended on warfare as well. Uh, so t- to say that the colonies are... Uh, military in their character does not mean that there's fighting going on all the time. And I think it's very important to remember that uh, you know, people could live entire lives without you know, facing conflict in various parts of the Atlantic world. But to the extent that they were tied into the trade networks and uh, especially the system of, of Atlantic slavery, their, their lives were profoundly affected and shaped by the military character of, you know, of exchange across the Atlantic world.
1: So the, I mean, shipping and seafaring mm-hmm. and, and and wars at sea are are a central component of the book. I mean, what is it about European shipping that makes Europeans uh, such effective uh, sort of global imperialists? And what what is it? Is it te- technological? Is it is it uh, organizations like the Royal Navy? I mean, what what's what's the what's the driver?
0: Well, I think, I think it is technological initially, as I say at the beginning of the book. I mean, it is uh, part of the story here is that the Atlantic is not navigated, you know, not crossed uh, routinely until very late. And if you think about it in world history, that's one of the things that distinguishes it from other oceans. And so the, the fact that the Europeans took these, uh, you know, mature sailing vessels across the ocean and met people who didn't, uh, uh have a comparable technology gives them an advantage initially that's very important. Uh and then once the Atlantic economy gets going, it, it has a lot to do with investment in infrastructure. I mean the, the ports, facilities, and uh, yeah and basically linking together uh you know outposts that ships can visit and uh, and uh, operate from. So
1: we're when we think about um European empires. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose most people who think about European imperialism maybe think of the British Empire and and maps that are Mm -hmm. that are colored with great washes of color to demonstrate the possession of land. Mm -hmm. Um, But this book, um, for me, uh, served as a sort of a a reminder that European imperial power came um, through water. And maritime channels uh, more so uh, than than land, and and that empire was a thing of water as opposed to land. I mean, to what extent is is that is that the case?
0: I think it's very definitely the case early on, and and actually pre- longer. I think than a lot of people appreciate that uh, a lot of the major confrontations in the sixteenth century are about. Uh, Port facilities about uh, shipping lanes. Uh, uh, I'm thinking particularly about a very climactic uh, uh, set of battles around the Azores Islands in the uh, 1580s uh, involving rival factions of Portuguese and Spanish and French, and then later English and Dutch get involved in the battles. Uh, The the people engaged in this, and this is one of the biggest overseas efforts the French ever uh, launch in the 16th century, it's all about controlling a place for ships to visit uh, and and uh, you know the empire is understood to depend on you know the uh, uh yeah the o- owning the shipping lanes or controlling the shipping lanes so the,
1: there's uh the uh, the ocean is a series of territories that then sort of extend on onto land mm-hmm. um how the people that they encounter uh let's just talk a little bit about sort of the Uh, Indigenous populations, perhaps. I mean, the the societies that Europeans encounter, Europeans notoriously go out across the Atlantic with with certain expectations of the cultures that they're Mm -hmm. going to encounter. And when they do encounter them, they form a set of other assumptions. But um, the indigenous and and island and uh, African cultures that the book (laughs) deals with, Mm -hmm. um, these people have a military culture of their own.
0: Right. Yes, and then it's a very effective military culture uh, in most <laughs> most contexts. I mean, uh, uh, in, in a sense, uh, you know, one of the bleak uh, uh, stories I want to kind of get across here is that uh, um, uh, you know I, I don't want to be universal about this, but uh, but it's very common for. Societies around the Atlantic before even the beginning of Columbus to be organized militarily, to be prepared militarily, and mm-hmm. uh, and when Europeans arrive in various places, Africa is the most dramatic example. Really, they they are, you know, in many places overmatched by the uh, uh, African military cultures that they encounter. They don't know how to. Uh, uh engage with them effectively and uh, and in large parts of africa Europeans are excluded for a large part because of uh you know uh, military action against them
1: so what is the what is then the the secret to uh european power i mean how do they move around how do they contend with with uh indigenous power sort of uh pushing back at them
0: almost everywhere, the key is uh, alliances with indigenous people in various parts of the Atlantic world. I I, I start uh, the the book uh, talking about the Norse in uh, Newfoundland and their their brief effort to establish an outpost there. And I I think there are at least two things that make that uh, uh, effort fail. And one is the inadequacy of their uh, sailing vessels to uh, efficiently maintain connections with uh, Green- Greenland or Europe. Uh, but the other thing is that they completely fail to uh, even communicate effectively with the indigenous people around them. And what happens later is that you get much more complex uh, networks, and, and a big part of those networks is the, the participation of indigenous Americans and Africans as well as Europeans in, uh, you know, it's in the economy as well as in, in you know, military action
1: so the the world then the atlantic world when when to go back to the sort of the atlantic paradigm the atlantic Mm -hmm. world as being one that's integrated it's not only integrated in purely imperial terms where for example caribbean planters move easily across the atlantic and there's inter-imperial trade and what have you but in fact eh, indigenous populations African populations are drawn in and in in some cases shape the character of that interaction.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I I think, you know, obviously we always have uh, a different kind of evidentiary base talking about uh, the European and colonial angles on this, but uh, uh, especially African historians are, are, uh, you know, drawing on, you know, especially the Portuguese sources and others to fill out uh, a, a lot of the story about uh, you know African conflict and the uh, uh, the ways that military culture in Africa has something to, big a part to do with uh, 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 the slave trade and how the slave trade develops. There's a whole another uh, literature about maroon communities in uh, in the Americas, which also emphasizes African uh, military traditions and the and. Yeah, Continuous uh, reinforcement of African culture within enslaved populations, which, uh, you know, continues into the 19th century. You can see African military things all over the Atlantic world, you know, for the whole period that I'm studying in this book.
1: And in terms of the American Northeast, (laughs) which is an enormously complex sort of space and period um, between the, I suppose, the late 17th century and the American revolution. Um, what, what's going on, what's going on there in terms of, of, uh, warfare and, uh, power rivalry in, 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 broad strokes. What do you, what do you see happening there?
0: Well, I mean, this is, I I think as I said, this is, that's the area where I started my career. It's, I, um, it is, like you say, extremely complicated. And I think one of the things that, uh, um, we are as uh, you know <laughs> scholars in general are, are increasingly realizing is the persistent presence of indigenous Americans in and around New England and as you know people aren't surprised at all to know that they were in and around uh, the French colonies and uh, the northeastern North America um, I uh, agree that with uh, Emerson Baker and John Reed made this argument uh, 15 20 years ago that the uh, Abenaki and their allies uh, in, there's a whole area just south of the st lawrence river a big area uh that remains basically under uh indigenous control uh going into the second half of the 18th century and uh and i think part of the story of northeastern north america if you think about nova scotia new brunswick and uh, uh especially um it it follows a, chrono- a chronological pattern which is common across much of the Atlantic world, which is the turning point is around the time of uh, the, the revolutionary era where suddenly you get a much larger influx of uh, European colonists and uh, you know that coincides with a lot of other changes, which you know, basically until then you have a very powerful indigenous military presence. The Mi'kmaq terrified the British when they come to Nova Scotia. But things change around the time of the American Revolution. And that
1: presumably is tied to the fact that the British um, were compelled Mm -hmm. to enter into agreements with their uh, their indigenous neighbors, Mm -hmm. not out of a position of outright imperial strength, but sort of as a pragmatic exercise in in balancing their power because they were, after seventeen sixty three, suddenly widely extended. Um, so, is there something to be said about when the when the United States, the the onset of the the republic, uh, that the, the cha- there's a distinct change in attitude towards not only indigenous peoples but also the enslaved?
0: Um, yes. Uh, 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 <laughs> The, the, uh yeah again i think this is an issue that it it's very helpful i'm certainly not the first person to say this to think about these issues on an atlantic scale mm-hmm. um uh the haitian revolution is critical i think for uh shaping american perceptions of uh, uh, uh of race in especially yeah. in a military context but basically what happens in, uh, around that era is that the idea of allying uh, the United States, and this is a common uh, perce- perception of, you know, not just within the United States, it's also increasingly it spreads around uh, the Atlantic world, that Europeans and the descendants of colonists do not make alliances with indigenous people outside their own borders. It's sort of a big international agreement, basically, that the old world of, of uh, you know, that uh, uh, you know, messy Tangle of alliances, shifting alliances around the Atlantic world, gets replaced by a nation-state system, which basically gives, you know, leaves the leaders of each nation-state to govern their own affairs. And in general, they uh, associate the indigenous and enslaved peoples within their populations as people who can only work in cooperation with their their sovereign. And each each area has its sovereign and. Uh, you know, enslaved people, have freed people and uh, indigenous people are generally not considered, uh, uh, you know, worthy of, of sovereignty. Mm. And I guess, can, can I say one more thing about that? Yeah. Just to start? Uh, uh, the, the, you know, the big, messy, uh, violent story that I tell, you know, you know, going from the 15th century to the age of revolution is a story of violence committed by you know, the whole variety of people living around the Atlantic world and what happens in the revolutionary. Another thing that happens is a sort of reinterpretation of that earlier history so that the peculiar violence of that early period is basically attached to indigenous people and Africans, which is, I I think, you know, obviously one of the distortions of history that serves a purpose for the people of the 19th century. And it's something obviously that we have to uh, uh, overcome ourselves.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's there, isn't it, in the Declaration of Independence (laughs) in the the reference to the merciless Indian savages whose only known way of war is the destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions.
0: Right, exactly. Um,
1: And it's also there in the vivid memory of the Wars that take place in the colonies in the 17th century, for example, mm-hmm. uh, Medicom's War, which is a, mm-hmm. a very bloody affair. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that memory of violence conditions people's attitudes going yeah. forward, doesn't mm-hmm.
0: it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: it's interesting, though, what the book shows uh, is 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 the extent to which Indigenous powers pushed back, and I was really drawn. To a, a really strong parallel, um, when you describe the Viking settlement in what we now call Newfoundland, mm-hmm. they they construct palisades, um, and it's kind of we don't ex- we don't think of Vikings as having to defend themselves mm-hmm. against another power, um, and of course Virginians uh, do the same thing uh, in the early 17th century, and. When the imperial infrastructure kind of emerges, it's one that's defined by a military infrastructure, forts along lakes, rivers and coasts, outposts, outposts and things of this sort. Um, so in a sense, when does that, mili- that militarism never really goes away, does it? It's just a question of scale.
0: Uh, you, you mean the, 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 need for infrastructure, the need for, yeah. yeah. Um, no, 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 I don't think it ever does go away. Uh, uh, I mean, it changes its form, uh, you know, many times over, but, uh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, but I, I, I no, I, yeah, exactly. I mean that the, uh, it, I, my book ends with the revolutionary era and I do think the world is different afterwards, but, uh, uh, um, but.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, there are forts. <laughs> I mean, if you if you look at a map of the contemporary Northeast, I mean, there's mm-hmm. Fort This and there's Fort That. What changes though after the Revolutionary Era? What's the argument there?
0: Um, well, I, I many things change. One of the things that runs through this book, and you go back to thinking about the Vikings or the early Virginians, in the, the, their fear of, or their, their, the way they're constrained by uh, uh, indigenous military power. A big part of that is because there isn't. No, they do not have a comparable device like the ship gives them a you know power at sea. There's nothing like that that gives them power on land. Mm. And eventually, they do get. I mean, the the descendants of colonists do get overwhelming power on land. It's partly to do with. Um, transportation infrastructure literally that roads railroads. and uh, railroads Well, they're yeah. the biggest one um yeah. and, and then mass uh migration of people uh you know the 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 whole you know scale of uh, of uh, settlement uh, uh, changes in the 19th century. And then you get this revolutionary uh, uh, ideology about uh, military service, the whole way people understand military service changes. And so, you know, it, thinking specifically about the United States, but it's certainly not exclusive to the United States, this ability to, in, in on short notice, call up uh, right. millions of fighting men and, uh, and deploy large armies. So it, it becomes, it's a very different world. And, you know, I guess I would say... You know that that uh, transportation, mass migration, and a new uh, ideology of warfare uh, that all have to do with it.
1: We're we've spent the the summer of twenty twenty doing all kinds of different things, um, and uh, as we've been locked down, we've been watching um, uh, real real sharp episodes of of conflict and violence. Uh, in the United States, and also here in the United Kingdom, and you and I are both North American expatriates. and um, Statues are being torn down, um, uh, and and history history is relevant. It's good for those of us who are historians. Um, we don't have to make the case for the relevance of our discipline just for a bit. Um, what this, I think, the great value of this book um, is that it kind of reminds us that. Uh, the founding of nations and states um, is is something that is intimately tied up with violence. So, I mean, what what do we have to, I mean, how do we have to sort of rethink violence in terms of where violence sits within national histories? Because quite often national histories like to paper over violence and, 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 and instead talk about mythological founding or origin stories or what have you. But when you put, when you put the centrality of violence and intercultural violence to boot in the center of the narrative, I mean, why is that important for us to recall as a historical lesson? That's a very long question, but that's, that's the essence of it.
0: Okay. Um, well, I, I I think when you focus on violence, uh, um, uh, the whole question of whose perspective you are taking becomes very sharp. And the implications of taking different perspectives, I think, become clear. And I I guess an example I would give uh, uh, would be um, the experience of the enslaved in the Caribbean. For many people uh, who were brought to the Caribbean as slaves, that was only a year or two of their lives, and it came at the end of violent episodes of, of warfare, or, or, uh, or kidnapping, or judicial action in Africa. Uh, confinement in a ship with the whole, uh, 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 you know, infrastructure of military force against them in the ship, and then arrival and, and a different kind of confinement in the Caribbean. If you think about Caribbean history. With that I in the perspective that that you know for any period up until uh, you know the early nineteenth century, certainly um a huge proportion of the enslaved population are people just like that who are you mm-hmm. know basically surviving the last moments of a whole long violent episode. Then some of the questions people ask when they're doing Caribbean history don't really make that much sense anymore. We talk about what kind of society was uh, Jamaica did they have? Uh, you know, a, a stable you know, social order. And you know, those, those questions get, se- seem, I mean, it, I'm trying to argue that everybody should only look at it through the lens of violence. And this is the only way to look at it. But I'm just saying that when you do, different questions come up and different ways of seeing, uh, uh, you know, the colonies uh, uh, become, you know, become clear.
1: I've been talking with uh, Jeff Plank, the author of Atlantic Wars from the 15th Century to the Age of Revolution, published by Oxford University Press. It's a fabulous survey uh, in in three parts uh, that takes us through and across and around the Atlantic world. Jeff, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today.
0: Well, thanks for having me.